0: This is the first in a six-part series by Terry Virgo on the Book of Philippians. The talks were first given to a gathering of senior international leaders from the New Frontiers family. Terry has based them on Paul's apostolic relationship with the Church in Philippi. The accompanying notes provide an outline to the series and also provide a number of quotations from helpful commentators. I'll just read, first of all, the opening section. I was delighted last evening when Simon began, to my surprise, talking about the birth of this church in uh, Acts 16, and I want to look at this epistle in a sense differently to how one might just see it as a a Bible reading that you might get at a Keswick convention or something, all right, let's do a nice little Bible reading, and what should we do? Oh, let's do St. Paul's Epistle to the Philippians. Uh, I want to much more look at it as uh, the context in which it really is. It's an apostle writing to a church that is in partnership with him. In fact, we were reminded last evening the first church planted in Europe, and it was so helpful just to get a glimpse of how it got formed, how it got planted, so we've got real people in our minds. I think it's very often that we read epistles without thinking of context, and uh, so often they get taken apart by theologians, especially some of the sections we'll look at while we're together, almost as though they were written for the desk and written for the library and written for the theological college. Instead of seeing, they were written uh, from prison uh, by an apostle who formed this community, as we saw last night, in the midst of uh, pain and power and all kinds of things being uh, being brought to birth, and a, a church that was in partnership with an apostle. And uh, that may fade a little bit in the background sometimes when we get to grips with certain passages. But I'd like us to have that in our minds. That this is what is happening here. So I'm going to read um, the opening section, the first 11 verses. And uh, I'm reading from the NASB, as is my habit. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints... In Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident Of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I do pray God will help us in this. It's different to the normal kind of preaching style that most of us go for. Lots of material, and I pray God will help it not to be boring, but helpful for us to look at. So, first of all then, to see that this is uh, Paul writing to his friends, and uh, you'll find he talks about my circumstances, how it's going with me. It's got a lot to do with a a loving, friendly letter. We saw last evening how... uh, The church was planted, Acts 16. It was the leading city in the district of Macedonia. It was a a focal point, a strategic place. We saw the supernatural kind of guidance he got there last evening. But it was a, a, a center from which he could work. It was also a full Roman colony with Roman citizenship conferred on it in 42 BC, which was a special privilege This wasn't just that uh, they'd come under the the boot of Rome. They had been given this high privilege of being a proper outpost of Rome. It was like living in Rome to live there. And uh, as we have sometimes found traveling overseas, you can go to some places that are still with a little bit of the touch of the old British Empire that are more British than Britain. And uh, I remember once going to a hotel in Bombay that was more British than Britain. And uh, I remember going to places in New Zealand that were more British than Britain, and I went to Victoria in Canada, and it was extraordinary. Uh, people were queuing up for tea and scones, and it was it was more British than Britain. I thought this is weird. And uh, now these colonies, they were like Rome. They were like Rome. Hence, I believe the extreme embarrassment when Paul said, "I am a Roman citizen." When they'd imprisoned him, uh, that in that context, this is not just where the Romans were. This is supposed to be an outpost of Rome, with all Rome's style, all Rome's values, a fairness, judgment—that's right—and they'd put Paul in prison without even trying him. And so Paul was being very smart, saying, "Hey, I thought this was supposed to be," and they thought, "Wow, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. We are an outpost of Rome. We got it wrong." And so uh, that was the feel of the place, and that will come up later. Uh, when Paul compares their citizenship later we'll see in a a later study uh, that that's a key thing in the way he addresses them and then just to notice that this is a bit different to some other epistles like say Romans and Ephesians where you get a doctrinal almost half and then an applicatory half uh, in rather sweeping terms but this one is all interspersed through in a much less disciplined letter really it's got a very Relaxed feel about it. It's a very affectionate, friendly letter. So Paul sends his greetings without any reference to Paul the Apostle appointed by God and all that. You don't find any of that here. It's Paul and Timothy, very informal. It's a unique way in which he just says Paul and Timothy. Elsewhere, sometimes he says Paul and Apostle and uh, Timothy and so on. But here, he just puts them together. And uh, he talks about there being slaves. And I think we're so used to our Bibles, we often sort of just trip over such words. Rome was full of slaves, and the Roman Empire was full of slaves. And uh, they weren't necessarily slaves, as in dreadful, ugly stories of men in chains that we know about in subsequent generations. A lot of them would have some dignity in the Roman household, but... The fact was this, they had no right to any personal choice. <laughs> they certainly didn't make their own plans. They had no right to life. And uh, Paul is saying we are slaves, uh, slaves of Jesus Christ. You remember, of course, he's writing himself from prison and uh, with chains. And uh, he uh, has been for some time now uh, a prisoner. But he's very happy to see himself initially and primarily as a slave. So he's, uh, he's sending, his greeting, and he writes uh, straight, av- straight away to the saints. Again, I just want to pick up some of these words, and I think that's the value, I hope it is, of really forcing ourselves into Scripture and letting Scripture shape us. And I, I you know, we travel widely enough to see charismatic groups that are not shaped by Scripture. They don't submit themselves to Scripture, and it does us good to, to really see the words and let them speak to us When Paul wrote, he wrote to the saints. Now, we know the Roman Catholics have confused that word and said, well, the saints are the special, like St. Paul and St. Peter and uh, putting glass windows and so on, color, glass, saints. And we say, no, no, we're all saints. But I think we often then rush on. So what do we mean? We're all saints. It's like one of those words like baptize. It doesn't have much meaning outside of the religious world it's in. Uh, and uh, so we don't attach much meaning to it. Uh, so saint or deacon and things like that, they don't mean much outside. You can't compare it. Saint means really holy ones. Imagine on Sunday morning as you start your meeting, say, write, write holy ones. That's what he's saying. Holy ones, let's stand up, holy ones. <laughs> we would, that's what he's writing, and he wrote this as a letter to freshly born Christians, and he says, now, holy ones, and uh, we saw what they were made up of last night, Uh, they're made up of jailer and businesswoman, and, uh, you know, we went through that last night, but Paul writes to them as holy ones, and uh, he's immediately giving them this extraordinary dignity, he's immediately uh, reminding them of their roots, and uh, it's just all of us, we're holy ones. Now, what does that mean? It means, well, it's an amazing description. And it's rooted back in the Old Testament where God says to Israel, you are a holy people. Now, what does that mean? Gosh, I'm so impressed with your ethical lifestyle. It doesn't mean that at all. It means they are specially chosen by God and associated with him. So what is holy is something that is associated with God. So he says, this is my holy mountain. Was that a very virtuous mountain? No. You don't look at it. Wow, look at the holy choices. No, no. It's just God. said, so this is the mountain. And when there's a burning bush, he says to Joshua, hey, oh, Moses, this is holy ground. Well, the ground? No, no. I've just chosen here. It's identified with me. And so... The fact of the... God says to Israel in the Old Testament, you are a holy nation. What does that mean about Israel? It means you are now identified with me. You are unique on the planet. You are identified, set apart for me. Like the Sabbath is holy. Why? It's set apart for me. That's what it means. Holy means set apart. Now in the Old Testament, that was a nation. And so if you had abram's blood and you were born in that community you were part of the holy nation the set apart nation now of course god himself is holy 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 so then you realize wow he is set apart we are set apart for him wow we better clean up our act but that's the way you arrive there you you arrive the 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 sequence is this you are set apart for god by the way god is holy 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 and so you change. But it means set apart. Now in the Old Testament, the the holy nation was Israel. God says you are a holy nation. I've set you apart. Now in the New Testament, God writes to a pagan city and a church. He doesn't say dear Philippians. He says to the saints, to the holy ones. And he's now saying you are holy in Christ Jesus. This is your identity now. You are Holy, you are the new community of holy ones, the ones who are in Christ. So, there's an awful lot packed into just his high folks. There's a lot of truth that's in there right from the beginning. And a, a guy called Hawthorne, who I stumbled on since I did all these notes in the word commentary, he says, This Paul viewed the members of the Christian church as the new Israel, the new community, separated and dedicated to God, the eschatological people, the people of the end times, to whom God will make good his promises, as made in Daniel chapter 7. The saints of the Most High, you remember the Daniel 7 passage, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. These are the ones, these people, who are made holy by virtue of their relationship with Jesus. Now it's important for us to know that. And it just struck me, I thought, imagine standing up Sunday at home and say, right, sometimes we say saints, but it's almost robbed of any meaning. Come on, saints, I sometimes say that. But if you said, come on, holy ones, wow, that's us. Yes, that's what it means, holy ones. And using the word saint is a kind of such a meaningless word almost. Come on, holy ones. Holy, yes, that's who we are. We're the holy ones. It's an important thing that he's addressing them straight away. As this identity, this motley gang of former demonized girls, jailers, businesswomen, come on, holy ones. You're now in relationship with Almighty God. And so he greets them in that kind of way. And then he says, and it's interesting to see again the, the sequence to the holy ones in Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. <laughs> It's really, so, it's like you're the holy people. Oh, by the way, there are these guys who serve you. So, it's not that we see, you know, through the leaders and the followers. No, it's this holy, unique community with the overseers and the deacons. And then, just to see the quote in your text, I was interested, uh has written The Bible Speaks Today commentary, and I would commend it to you. It's a very helpful, good commentary He's an Anglican, and uh, he did the uh, commentary on Isaiah, which we've often recommended. But it's interesting to see an Anglican say this. When we add Paul, the apostle, and Timothy, the apostle's delegate, we have a remarkably full summary of the constitution of the New Testament church. The body of believers, the local church officers, the overarching apostolic work of Paul, and the occasional ministry of a person like Timothy coming into the local situation from outside. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I read read that. I thought, yeah, good. So what are you doing with archbishops? (laughs) Why do you do all that stuff? I think, that's right. I agree with all that. And he says, this is a remarkable summary of church. I think, yeah, that's right. We believe in that. That is a beautiful quote. And then he says again, uh, the impression we receive of the New Testament is of, a local, of local churches loosely federated under apostolic authority, with each church managing its own affairs under the leadership of overseers and deacons. So I think, yeah, amen, <laughs> I'm for that too. <laughs> I like this. I think, I think I'll join this guy's church. <laughs> oh, perhaps not. <laughs> but it's uh, an excellent. So often these guys are incredibly helpful when they just shut all the doors and get to the text. And, um, and you think, yes, amen. And uh, so here we have uh, this description of the church with its overseers and deacons. Just an interesting quote again by Mateo. We often wonder about deacons, don't we? We think, where does it fit? Some of us come from Baptist backgrounds where deacons were not a great blessing. Uh, but just to notice, just notice what it says here. Deacons were obviously a distinct office. We're told nothing about the functions of a a, a deacon was meant to fulfill. If we ask why their respective functions were not more closely defined, then surely the answer is this. Ministry arises from the nature and needs of the church, not vice versa. The appointment of the seven in Acts 6 may provide a model. Interesting, he just says a model. I like that too. A need arose in the church in Acts 7. Uh, verses 1 and 2, which exposed a gap in the ranks of the leadership. The assumption was made that if this was a true need in the church, God would have gifted servants at hand, ready to be recognized, authorized, and to step into the breach. Isn't that excellent? I think that's excellent to see that you don't need to see this hierarchy, but you suppose God will supply ministries to meet actual living needs and then we will look to see who are such and follow the kind of instructions that are there, or at least the example that's there in Acts 7. I think it's very helpful. So he's this unique introduction uh, to a letter, a reference to the overseers and deacons, but these are interesting comments. So, to the holy ones and those who are serving them in leadership. Then he goes on to thanks, thanksgiving, as so often he does. Paul uh, doesn't commend them in an isolated way as a local church, but for their partnership in the gospel. And you'll find that uh, that word partnership is frequently used. You'll find it in 1-7, 2 It's a repeated uh, theme. And it has to do with joint ownership. You remember when... Uh, Peter, James, and John, uh, when Jesus first met them, they were in a fishing koinonia. They were partners, and it's the same word. They, they were part owners in partnership of a fishing firm. And so when one guy's nets go, they rush to help. They're partners. And uh, here, now we're in koinonia. Uh, It's not just in Acts chapter 2 that you read about. They gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine for uh, koinonia, etc. Here it is, right through. We are in partnership, serious partnership. And Paul writes to this church as a church in joint ownership, partnership with him of gospel development and in common purpose. And so I've just put in the notes there, the churches were not seen as static islands, while he traveled the seas of apostolic mission, writing theological treaties, they were partnership in partnership with the apostolic mission. Now I believe that 's something that some of our churches are clearer about than others, and I want to encourage us to to be alive to that. It may well be actually that um, some of us in England are weaker than others. I am very thrilled when I go to I mean, I could mention so many. I think of the church at the lake in um, Missouri. I walk in their door. First thing I see is map of the world, pictures of you guys all over, arrows, things. This is our mission. You know, this is a church by the lake in Missouri. And you just feel ownership of the vision, ownership of the mission. And we want every one of our local churches to display and demonstrate over ownership we're on a mission, and it's not just, oh, we're here, and actually it was great. We got these guys look in a bit, and it's helped us, sorted out our house groups a bit. And uh, some folk got baptized in the Spirit when they came, which is nice. It's good to belong to NFI. You know, we've really got to help them feel, no, we're on a mission together. And in some places, it's wonderful. And I don't mean to rubbish anyone. I just want to say, let's constantly get this biblical perspective, churches in partnership on a mission. And uh, so Paul can write to, that to them in those terms. So he gives thanks with joy. And uh, that's another uh, key theme in uh, the Philippians. Uh, and you have to say, in spite of his imprisonment, in spite of the problems which are real, and even some of the profound problems he addresses, you'll find joy keeps bursting up like bubbles, uh, keep bursting through his spirit. Thanksgiving. And then confidence. Again, uh, this guy Hawthorne says confidence permeates Philippians. The, the, the word confidence you'll find recurring just reading the text. But he's confident, he's joyful. And those two things are happy friends. To be confident is to have joy. Lose your confidence, you lose your joy. These things must uh, be together. And so he's confident that God is at work in them. And uh, it's great for us to remember that. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in view of your participation in the gospel from the first until now. Confident of what? This very thing. He who began a work in you. He doesn't say, I'm so glad you decided that Christianity was a better religion than the Greek gods I'm so glad you came to this decision. That's not where his emphasis lies. He says, I'm so glad God has begun a work. God has begun a work in Europe. God led Paul there. God began it. Paul didn't even want to go there. He's trying to go this way. He's trying to go that way. And he says, God shut him in. And then God began the work. God began to invade their lives. It's so important for us, dear friends, as we look at nation after nation, city after city, it may look a small beginning sometimes, just the two or three people we read about in the book of Acts, or we may experience, or we've met a small cell here, a little group there. God is breaking into a new town. God began a work. It's magnificent. I thank God for a good sovereignty of God perspective that makes us strong. We're not just having a go. God is at work. God opened, first it says God opened Lydia's heart. Then she opened her home. Then they put him in prison. So God opens the prison. He opens the earth with an earthquake. And then he opens the Philippian jailer's heart. What must I do? Hey, God's at work. And so when we start going into new situations, we've got to hold this in our heart. God is at work. And he's going to continue working in them. He says, work out your salvation in Philippians 2.13, for God is at work in you. He didn't just start the work. He didn't just save you at the beginning. It's on a daily experience. God is at work in you. Every time you feel, I want to pray, God's at work in you. Every time you think, I believe God, God's at work in you. When I was talking to Pete at breakfast, and he said, God said to me at Stonely, buy tents. He thought, why would I buy tents? Well, God is at work in you. God was working in him, preparing him for the next step in Africa. God is at work in us. When God says to, uh, uh, to Colin, 20 churches in Manchester, God is at work in us. We're, we're, we're co-workers with God. Where did that come from? Well, God's at work in us. God began a work. God continues the work. God is at work in us. It's his work that's taking place in our lives. And so Paul says, God's working in you. Hallelujah. It's not just an example for us to copy. We've got a God of energy at work in us. And notice this too. His goal is until the day of Christ. Uh, His pull, again, this is a theme that comes out. It's rather like an overture, these opening remarks, as Dr. Lloyd-Jones always used to say about these opening remarks. It's like like the overture, just sows some of the themes in the overture, which are later in the... Uh, work open up to their fullness so he's opening up this theme until the day of christ jesus and paul has always got his view on that day you know we may have our five-year plan paul's got a rather longer term view all right this he's always looking for the day of the lord it's a recurring theme the day of the lord till that day he lives with that constantly in view so he says uh, i'm uh Looking for that, the day of Christ. It's always got this eschatological perspective. Just a word about the word eschatological. <laughs> it's an ugly, long, awkward word. And I think sometimes we feel we must spare the saints and not use that word. I feel, I'm, I feel we've got to. I, I am more and more persuaded that this eschatological, this end time, Perspective. We may need to change the word or something. But if we don't talk about this, we are missing something huge. And I can only say it's getting impressed on me more and more and more, that the eschatological perspective is so important that we've just got to... You know, they learn justification. We all learn sanctification. We're going to have to learn eschatological because it is so important. And I believe, I, I feel for myself... I'm praying about it. I'm asking God, open up my understanding more about this. And I'm not talking about charts and when things happen. That isn't my point. I'm talking about understanding what the church is. It's a people of the new age. It's an end-time community. It's an eschatological people. And uh, God's end-time plan to have a people is more and more gripping me. And so we mustn't be scared of that word and spare the saints with it, which is good talk about it until they're used to it because it's so important I think and so Paul is saying uh, that this is the view and you'll find I put a few verses there where it occurs again and again through the epistle his motivation of love you are in my heart I long for you all and uh, I've left out the word in the notes all which I should have put in because it's rather a key word And there's division and problems at Philippi, as we'll come on to later. Not serious like at Corinth. It's not addressed with the same seriousness as at Corinth. But it is a problem which must be addressed and leads to the sublime passage in uh, in the second chapter. But it's got to be addressed. And the word all is in the text. I long for you all with the affection of Christ. And you'll find the word all comes in verse 4 verse 7 verse 8 and uh, he, he keeps on saying all of you it's not just I'm not there's some party problems going on there's this group and that group and he's saying listen I long for all of you I'm not joining one of the groups I have a longing for all of you and he says God is my witness and that may be adding that serious note it's like almost like a vow God is witness to this I love you all you're all in my heart I know you've got some problems between you but I just want you to know you are all in my heart. And uh, we little phrases like God is my witness, in that uh, culture is a big statement. It's like it says in Hebrews 6, 16, a vow brings an end of all debate. And so he's saying, listen, God is my witness. I care for all of you. And I know the problems, the personality problems these two women will come to later on. But listen, I'm for all of you. And that's very important, apostles. <laughs> that sometimes we'll hear of problems at a distance and and sometimes people will want to get on to you at a distance say well listen i'm for all of you we'll see what we can do when we get there but i want you to know we're all for all of you and you're all in my heart and so it's a very important thing to pick up i long for you all and with the affection of christ that's talking about the the inner parts it's a some things say the bowels of Christ, which always brings a smile to naughty boys in the second row. But uh, it, says, it says, really, you could say the entrails. It's a, it's a word that speaks about your guts, really. I love you with the guts of Christ. I love you with, uh, it's like they felt that this was the seat of emotions, and they may be right. You know, you feel things deep inside. And, he's, and he says, I feel, I love you. It's, Uh, with the deep feelings, the entrails uh, of Christ. Uh, My my praying in the Spirit is so in communion with the love of Christ that I move from my own desires and feel myself stirred with Christ's desires. That, That you feel, you know, I believe that's what praying in the Spirit really is that we pray and suddenly we feel, Paul says, I pray in Colossians with all the power that he mightily inspires within me. I think it's the same idea. That, And that's why, dear brothers and sisters, we must be men and women of prayer. And you have to give time to pray because we don't start with the entrails. <laughs> you begin, you pray, you seek God, and then sometimes you feel such surges of longing that you feel almost overwhelmed. And Paul talks about laboring in prayer. And only the women who've had babies in this room understand that, really. Some of us may have looked on. Uh, but wow, I thought, when I saw one of our babies born, I only saw one, I thought, I will never say a rough word to my wife again. <laughs> 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 I, I, you know, I will, I will only treat her with a- utmost respect. Uh, grief, how do they do that? And uh, <laughs> and I guess there's a time when you are overwhelmed, you are taken over. And Paul says, I labor in prayer for you. And it's certainly using that kind of language. And here we're talking about a prayer level that isn't just me saying prayers. And so we've got to see Paul, much of Paul's ministry is this hidden praying ministry that is not visible. And yet he's saying, God is my witness. It really does happen. God is my witness, and God is witness to your prayer life, and God is witness to my prayer life. God knows, and we need to be able to live in the light of this as we see apostles working with churches. That's what this letter's about, and God's called us together as an apostolic band. Let's see the example. He says, I feel it deeply. And then his prayer. The actual prayer, an interesting quote of Lloyd-Jones here, his prayers are as theological as all his arguments and discussions. They are full of teaching, of theology and doctrine. He doesn't know what it means to pray prayers that are moved merely by emotions and sentiment. His prayers are always based upon something foundational. They are always in the light of certain background and they proceed from it. And I think that is magnificent and I think it's something we've got to learn. I was so thrilled recently. We've got a young uh, guy, Tom Eaton, who impresses me more and more and more. And a guy, he is discipling, prayed in the prayer meeting the other morning when we had our staff. He prayed a magnificent prayer. And he wasn't just um, giving us a theological thing. You know, sometimes you can go to prayer meetings. I I tended to associate them with non-charismatic. But they just kind of pray a sermon at you. And you think, oh, that's all very impressive. But you don't feel there's any heart in it. So I'm not talking about let's just be theological. And so you tell God a great history thing. God knows all that. But but I think, you know, there's a difference between dear old John Wimber. This is the prayer. Lord, help, 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 Lord, help. (laughs) That's authentic prayer, John Wimber style, as he used to say. And I don't despise that. But what he's saying is this. There is a praying that is rooted in revelation and truth that helps you argue your case. And uh, I found D. A. Carson's book, um, "Call to Spiritual Renewal," I think it is, which is uh, Thank you. "Call to Spiritual Reformation," which is a series of talks he gave on some of Paul's prayers. It's brilliant. I would just affirm that book. It's brilliant, and it shows how Paul's prayers start with what God has done, and follow through in line with that. So it's acknowledging sovereignty, but then praying into sovereignty which is something we've got to learn about prayer. And uh, so I think it's this great statement of Lloyd-Jones that there is there's a theological a root. I'm not saying let's just get wordy about our prayers. I don't mean that. But I mean there's light and there's a mingling of faith because you say, Lord, you said. And I think all the great prayers, whether it's Moses, Elijah, and so on, you said, this is the truth. This is what you've committed yourself to. Therefore, we pray. And I think it's a very important part of prayer. And uh, here, so we see Paul is praying in the light of uh, revelation. And I think we've got to do that. When I saw Peter Jungren, I was impressed when I saw him in Mombasa uh, preaching to 80,000 people off this platform. And he said, he said, Philip preached the gospel there. And he just <laughs> he said, I am preaching the gospel here. And he, the fa- you could feel the faith whirling in his own heart as he said it. And he said, and when Philip did it, these things happened. So when I do it, these things will happen. That was so simple, simple, simple. And I thought, y- this guy is not only preaching, he is speaking to his own soul. You could see it happening. I felt, I watched faith rise in him while he was saying it. And he just kept saying it. Philip preached the gospel there. Because that's what it says. And Philip preached the gospel there. So he said, I'm preaching the gospel here. And I felt the guy is just reminding God of his faithfulness. And prayer must be like that. Prayer is, if it's not, if it's, oh, God, help. This is difficult. What do we do? Oh, help, help. No, no, no. You've got to say, God, you said. You said. And so here Lloyd-Jones is saying his prayers are theological. Not just they're correct. But they're lined up with truth. And so that truth undergirds confidence and expectation in him. And so his prayer is uh, is rich, rich, rich. So he prays for abounding love. Now, these are some of the problems they've they've got they've got a problem of division. So he's praying for them, and I've said here the prayer is full of matters that will be raised later in the letter. He prays for abounding love. That's his first prayer. Paul, the former legal, legalistic Pharisee wants first of all their love to abound still more and more. They already have love. He's praying for abounding love. And I've put here, Paul loves the word abound or overflow. And 26 times of its 39 occurrences in the New Testament is Paul, uh, uh, Paul's. And um, this little note here, it's not just for me, it's just to... Uh, say, it. the other commentary that I've used more than any and found the most helpful is Gordon Fee's commentary on Philippians, which is outstanding, as it seems to me, nearly everything he writes is. Superb commentary, commend it to you, and we'll be quoting it often in these sessions. But again, I stumbled on this guy Hawthorne that I mentioned to you, the word commentary, and he says this, perhaps no, he's talking about abound or overflow, perhaps no other word so characterized for Paul, the new age opened up by Christ, as does this word. For, the new, for this new age is no meager age, but one marked by an overflowing and rich abundance of good things. And the, and the, the note on that page in, uh, uh, in Fee's commentary is saying the same sort of thing. And just has all the, loads of the places where abound is used. It's just abound in this, abound in that, abound, overflow. Uh, it's, it's a recurring theme in, in Paul's writings. And as this guy Hawthorne says, it characterizes the age in which we are. It's an overflowing time. It's what we heard about these rivers. Overflow, overflow. And, uh, and this is no meager age. Hallelujah. I love that. Uh, God's called us to an overflowing and so we're not going to settle for anything less. Amen. We want something overflowing. Here's an example, just one example. It's not in your notes. you may want to put it down. Two Corinthians 3:9, and it's good in the NASB. The NIV lags sadly behind again. Uh, but it says, "For the ministry, if the ministry of Condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory." There it is. The old ministry had glory, like he's talking about Moses' face shone. Well, that had glory. Boy, a man saw God and his face shone. Wow, that's pretty exciting. But he says, how much more does this new new thing abound in glory? So that's a, a frequent reference. You'll find Paul uses the word overflow or abound. It's the part of what we expect. So he's praying for them to have overflowing love. And obviously, that is in contrast to selective love in terms of, well, we love them, but we don't love them. You know, I'm on Syntyche's side in this, you know, or whatever. But we know that we're abounding in love. We want to see overflowing love. But then he goes on, not only to talk about overflowing love, but also in knowledge and depth of insight. So... If you like, love is the force. We had a prophecy over here when we were praying for John about an artesian well. A a well that springs up. And and if you like, love is to be the force. He said, I'm I'm praying for you that your love will abound. It's just going to overflow. Love. That's the driving force. That's the energy factor. The energy factor is love pouring out of you. That's the energy factor. Then he wants it mixed in with knowledge and depth of insight. Now, knowledge, this word epignosis, gnosis is knowledge, epi means like full knowledge. And uh, uh, NASB translates it real knowledge. And it's probably at its most explicit in all the translations in 1 Corinthians 13:12, when it says, then we shall fully know even as we are known. And that's probably, it's, it's in many places in the New Testament, but that is where the translation brings it out probably more forcefully. Then we shall fully know. And Paul is praying this here, that your love may abound with full knowledge. There's got to be an aspect of knowledge uh, in the love you're expressing. And Fe uh, says this, its primary sense is not so much knowledge about something, but rather the kind of full or innate knowing that comes from experience or personal relationship. Love must have knowledge with it, a maturity of knowing. I want to just read the two more quotes here first. Matthias says, we grow in proportion as we know. Without knowledge of salvation, there can be no progress to maturity. And so you'll find this word epignosis is often in Paul's prayers for people that they might know, they may come to know in Ephesians. It's that come to the full knowledge of. You might know. The more we know, and that's what saddens me about charismatic people often, that they're not bothering to press in to know more. They're easily contented. And we must not, we must as a movement, we must not take that on. We've got to value knowledge not, and don't fall for that one that says I don't know about God we're going to do, look at that in a minute like, I don't want to know about God I just want to know God that sounds wonderful but when I fell in love with Wendy I wanted to know about her you don't despise that you want to know about her well, tell me about you're interested it's part of loving and so to say oh, I don't want to know about God or theology I just want to know him it's silly And we just need to see it's a false dichotomy. You don't go with that. You want to know about him and you want to know him. Now, if you're left with only knowing about him, it can be pretty dry, arid stuff if we're not actually knowing him as well. So let's just make sure we see that. And Carson, uh, in his quote, says this. The ever-increasing love for which Paul prays is to be discriminating. It is to be constrained by knowledge and depth of insight. Without the constraints of knowledge and insight, love very easily degenerates into mawkish sentimentality or into the kind of mushy pluralism the world often confuses with love. Now, we're in the midst of that all the time, aren't we? Toleration, you know, Christianity equals toleration is what is... uh, Often said, and, and, and it's, a, it's a dangerous age. Uh, Dave has just written a magnificent article on confrontation that will be in your next magazine. It is superb. And uh, he brings out the point that we live in a generation of toleration. Well, who am I to confront you? Because, well, we all have our views. And I'm supposed to be loving anyway. And he is saying, no, no, you've got to have love as your energy, but if you don't have dis- ability to distinguish between, then you're in trouble. You're in trouble, and so we face this certainly in the British charismatic scene, where we are out of step, sadly, with number of charismatics whose appeal to us, and I put it in the chapter in my book No Well-Worn Paths on Unity and Revival, I think I called it, where we are constantly being appealed to express unity, unity. And somehow you just sink your differences for the sake of unity, and then God can bless. Now, Paul is saying, I want your love to be discerning. Now, that doesn't mean that it's exclusive. I had a very sweet letter, actually, from Pete Lyon. He just wrote me two days ago. Uh, He said, I've just read your book. He said, I thought it was wonderful. He said, you're no, uh, what's it called? No, turn up the contrast. He said, none of the points surprised me. He said, I know we differ. But he said, I notice how you affirm George Verwer in your last chapter, who is obviously in para church. So he says, Your generosity of spirit to those who differ from you, I hope, extends to us as well. And he said it warmly. It wasn't making an ugly point at all. Who differ with you on other areas. Yes, we can love. And we want to affirm someone like a George Verwer. I can happily affirm. He is an amazing man of God. But I disagree with the way he works, fundamentally, in the end. And there are other things happening in the UK. And for the sake of unity, people appeal to us. Come, Isn't it loving to embrace everything? Paul says, no, I want your love to grow more and more and be discerning. These are not enemies. Uh, with full knowledge, that's what leads to your discernment. You understand So Paul wants them, uh, as as D.A. Carson said, not to get into mushy, uh, whatever his expression was, mushy pluralism. You know, you can say, of course, yeah, everything goes. No, everything doesn't go. Does that mean you're unloving? No, we love them. But we're not changing on this. And I believe this is a a very important prayer for us at the moment, that we will not just go with anything in the name of love. And uh, we've got to get it right and stand ground. So he says, I'm praying for you that you will get this right. So toleration is the big God today, isn't it? And Jesus said this in Revelation, I have this against you that you tolerate. So I don't want to be out of step with Jesus. There are things we're not to tolerate. Uh, so that's, that's his prayer. And ver- number three, able to discern what is best. The NIV is good there. Approve what is superior. And the word eisthesis means dis- discernment. And it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. But that the concept is to perceive. The verb is used to perceive. And it's actually the kind of feel that you have in the book of Proverbs. That kind of knowing. What you might call street wisdom. You know, street wise. See, is, We mustn't have people in our pews saying, Oh, this is all very... Oh, this is all theology. Can't understand this. You see, you've got to understand. You need wisdom, and some people turn off. They say, "Oh, it's theological." Hey, you need this because it's it's you're going to get streetwise, and and it's very important for us that uh, as as Kidna says, it's stri- it's, stri- it's being streetwise. The business of living, not for the elite, and the pursuit of scholarship. It's so important. The Christian should be the wisest guy in the factory. The smartest guy in the office. They're smart. They understand what life's about. And they're smart. And they've got their lives together. They've got their families together. Why? Because they're not just good people. No, no. They're smart. They've got God's wisdom. That's what it's about. Get God's wisdom. And so we must help people to bridge that. It's knowing the truth. It's understanding Ephesians 5 will strengthen your marriage. It's getting revelation about Christ in the church and gave his life and get working your way through it is going to build lives. And so it's important for us to see what Paul's after here, that he's talking about uh, that your love is with full knowledge, which leads to this ability to discern. And D.A. Carson says... What you need is the extraordinary discernment that helps you to perceive how things differ. That's apparently at the root of this word. It's how things distinguish that differ. And then make the best possible choice. That is what Paul means by choosing what is best. His point thus far, then, is that love, shaped and honed by knowledge and moral insight, is the absolute requirement for testing and approving what is best for developing a sense of what is vital. That is a magnificent quote. God wants us to be able to choose the best. And we want our people, new converts, to learn. Now your goal now is to choose the best. And this is how you need love will guide the way. Love will keep you from bad attitudes. Love will will be the energy force. Now with that love, you must accumulate knowledge it's not just head knowledge, it's knowledge that comes from a relationship, accumulating more insight, so that you begin to choose what is the best and know what is vital. That, that is the procedure, that's the process that goes through this. And uh, Hawthorne again says this, the ability to make proper moral decisions in the midst of a vast array of differing and difficult choices that are constantly presenting themselves to the Christian. Uh, just again, chatting to Pete and Hetty, and all that they've been through, it's like everyday changes. There's, they're, being, they're being thrown at them, differing a vast array, a vast array, I thought of them as I wrote this down, a vast array of differing and difficult choices are constantly presenting themselves. And Paul says, I want you to choose the excellent." How will I do that? Well, love is to be the energy that drives the machine. And then with knowledge and wisdom, I choose what's the best. That's what Paul's praying for them. I choose the best. Now, it's fascinating to see, uh, Fee says this, truly Christian life, some things matter and other things don't. And it's discerning that. It's discerning that. And again, Lord jones the whole art of life, I sometimes think, is the art of knowing what to leave out what to ignore, what to put on one side. And sometimes you meet people who are not streetwise because they don't understand that. And they'll talk to you about it thing, you think, hey, that doesn't matter. <laughs> that's huge for them. You think, it doesn't matter talk, "Wow, What's the answer? It doesn't even matter what the answer is. You know, that you've oh, I don't understand, but you don't need, forget it. It's, it doesn't matter. And we've certainly got to be in the good of that. If we're going to be leaders, we've got to know, no, just leave it. I'm like, how can you leave it? You leave it. And so that's making good choices. And it's very, very important for us. And so, you know, application later in the letter, Yudia and we will come to later. They've got problems. You know, they've got relational problems. Now, maybe they've not done this well. They may be hassling over something. And they've got to learn, make a right choice. And we'll come later on to the whole matter of circumcision. Great, huge issue in the church of those days. They've got to learn what, is, what matters, what's important. And as we heard last night, Paul would argue one way about Timothy and Paul would argue about circumcision, but then later we'll make a decision. Why? Well, he's motivated by love. He knows the truth and he's making the choice for what is excellent for Timothy which sadly for Timothy means he meets the knife. (laughs) But this is the excellent choice, Tim. (laughs) So it's important for us to see how that worked. And uh, we won't bother with all the others. But Paul does, does not give a list of do's and don'ts. I remember the African School of Leadership when we were talking about cultural issues. And they're massive. You go from one nation to another, and some of them are interspersed with... Legalistic Christianity that they just took on board from us, and from, you know, just took the whole thing on board. And then we touched something. Oh no, that's in our culture. In our culture, that's how we would see the leader. That's how we would see. And you think, hold on, let's um, is it the culture? Is it actually African culture? In even that, is it good African culture? Or is it something you actually learned from some legalistic missionaries from England? And so we've got to not say sometimes people want to say to you, So what's the new list? All right, you don't like our list? What's the new list? And you say, This is the new list. Let your heart be flooded with love, know the truth, and go for what's excellent. You say, Well, that's not a list at all. That's right. That is right. And that's why I was so blessed last night with Simon's word. I, mean, I was so blessed by it, just the whole word. It was awesome. But this thing about we cannot overdo speaking about grace. It helped me a lot. Because, you know, you think, I went to Germany the other day. What did you speak on? Oh, grace. Oh, Terry's all he talks about. And, uh, you know, you sometimes feel, I do have other things to say. You know, <laughs> But I felt, I felt encouraged last night that this is so important. And it pervades everything. You see, if you, if you, uh, the alternative to this, I want you to go for the excellent. The alternative is, these are the rules. You, know, you don't smoke, you don't wear this, you don't do that, you don't go here. There's the list. Paul doesn't go for lists. He goes for, with a love of God in your heart, knowledge, discernment, get streetwise, choose the excellent. Why wow, you can't beat that. That's what we go for and uh, and so he refuses to give them a list it's not a legalistic stance and again i love carson's comment here paul refuses to set up an arbitrary set of checkpoints against which christians are to measure themselves he refuses to erect hoops through which believers must jump rather he simply prays to his heavenly father and asks him that these believers may pursue what's best it sounds too simple He's asked daft, what's better? No, no, this is the biblical way. And sometimes when you you can meet some people who don't like our grace stance, and they say, it's too simple, it's too silly, what are the finer points, do you believe this or that? And they kind of despise our stance, but it's very biblical stance. Go for the excellent. Aim for the best. And and it's good to see Carson making that so explicitly uh, in this case. That they may be, just a couple of phrases here to close with. You may be pure and blameless. Pure has to do with inner character, that there's no mixture. Paul talks about his own sincere motives in that, that qu- reference should be on the line underneath, 2 Corinthians 2.17, when he's talking about his own uh, sincere motives. And this word pure, uh, some of the commentators think it, it derives from a, a Greek word which means bring to the light. And so I, I put a shirt on the other day, and I, I stood in front of the mirror, and I thought, that looks, that looks all right. And actually, I put a tie on with it. And then I stood on the platform in Germany, and they turned the lights on. And uh, Andreas will remember this. I thought, ah, this clashes with this, and there's a mark here. It was all right until we, uh, we put it underneath the television lights. And in my, in my uh, hotel room, it looked good. You know, I thought, wow, that was nice. Then I I stood in front of the television. I thought, ah, that's a different color than that. And that, you know, bring it to the light. And you can get away with anything. I can say to my son, Tim, who's at university. Yeah, Wendy wasn't there. I took it to (laughs) (laughs) university. I I said to my son, Tim, who's just started university, are you doing this and this and this? He says, nobody is. See, that's so easy. Are you doing it? None of the others are. That's how you get your. St- so many Christians get their standards. Are you doing this? Well, no one's bothering to do this. And I, I said, wait, wait a minute, what about. And, and you can so easily feel this is the standard. This is, this is how much people. That's, you know, the occasional lie. One high profile man I heard in America brought to my attention about him that he'd got relationships all over the place, international traveler. Got women here and there that he had romantic relationships with. And he he says, We all need some tender, loving care when we're on the road. I mean, that's how he said it. We just need some care. You think, God. And it's almost like, Well, we know this, don't we? We know this. And somehow, somewhere, presumably, others knew this. That's okay. You do that. Listen, there's going to be a day. There's going to be a day we meet God. And Paul says, I want your life pure, brought to the sunlight. That's, the, that's probably the derivation of the word. Bring it to the light. Now look at it. Oh, my word. I thought it was all right. See, I got a shock. I was embarrassed. I thought, that's all right. And I saw, oh, God, I feel ashamed of this. Listen, forget my shirt. You're going to stand before God one day. It's going to be, there's never going to, listen, there's never going to be a light like that light. And listen, he's not going to say, oh, it's Terry, he meant well. He's not. He really is not. He's going to judge me by an objective line. And he will not say, oh, it's Terry, I know him, he meant well. We will be judged by a light. And we don't want to kid ourselves. We will be judged by a light. And uh, it's I want you pure, pure, see-through, transparent, And as this work grows, bigger and bigger and bigger, the temptations are cut corners. God is my witness, I pray frequently. Wendy's my witness, I pray frequently. Don't lead me into temptation. Do you pray it? Pray it and go through it. The world, the world, the flesh, name it, the devil. Say, God, don't lead me there. Deliver me. From evil. I pray. I, you're my deliverer. You can deliver me. I know my need. You can deliver me. You will deliver me. So we need to pray it. Keep me pure and blameless. So it's inner purity and outer. But you don't cause offense is the word. That's what it means. Without You don't provide stumbling. The only other place Paul uses the phrase in his writings is 1 Corinthians 10.32. It's the only other... Paul uses it and it means cause other people reason for stumbling that you cause by the things you do they say ah oh, that new frontier, they did this now uh, we do give that sometimes and we just need to say God please 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 keep us from causing offense you see sometimes ah who cares blind people and it's part of our radical edge well sometimes sometimes it's true that we offend because we're radical and we're, we're part of that rock of offense of Jesus, but let it never be, because we put a stumbling block in someone else's way. Because we were that without integrity, we let people down. It's Paul's praying that for them. A, a life, Matthias says, a life against which no charge can be justly laid. It's a good phrase. He said, right. You know, they may want to say against us, but it isn't just. God, God will vindicate us in the end. And then, until the day of Christ, we touched on that earlier, and we haven't time to stay with it now is always to the day of Christ. Is always filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Don't forget, that's where it comes from. The law can't produce fruit. He's an impotent husband. We better not get back into all that again. But God, Jesus, we're joined to him. We bear fruit through our relationship with Jesus. It's consistent. Paul is consistent. Fruit comes through Jesus Christ. Being married to him makes me bear fruit to the praise and glory of God. That's the whole objective. That's what God's after, his own glory. And uh, uh, it's the sort of thing Jesus prays in John 15, you bear much fruit so that my Father is glorified. That's Paul's prayer for them. Father, we just pray for, Lord, ourselves right now. Lord, we thank you that we can be called saints. We, Lord, we are holy ones set apart for God in Christ Jesus. We thank you for it. We thank you, Lord, by your grace. We want to be true slaves that we don't have our own decisions. We, we think of many in our ranks now wondering, should I move? Should I go? We think again of Pete and Hetty having to move and just uh, saying where, what. We think of dear friends at home, names spring to mind, who are saying, please pray for us. We're not sure. Are we meant to go here or there? We just say, Lord... Make them true slaves who leave you with the choices. And Lord, we ask you again that this wonderful, wonderful prayer might characterize us, that we might be overflowing in love, that our love may overflow more and more. Help us in it, God, and give us wisdom and knowledge to make excellent choices all the time. And help us, Lord, as apostles working into churches, to have this ambition for them, that they will make excellent choices, and that we may teach them not just to have rules and regulations, but heart motivations that aim very high and go for what is excellent. God, deliver us from settling for less than excellence. We pray, give us desires for the excellent, and give us skill to reproduce these motivations in our ranks. We do pray, in Jesus' name, amen. This concludes the first part of this six part series. For more information on New Frontiers resources, visit the website on www.newfrontiers.xtn.org.